Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Laura Samara Sands. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. episode of the Fishers of Men podcast. Today we are talking with uh, Dr. Tim O'Malley. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm uh, Tim O'Malley. I direct the Center for Liturgy at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where I'm also the editor of our journal Church Life, and uh, I teach theology, uh, liturgical sacramental theology in our, our department here on campus at Notre Dame. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I initially contacted you because I read an article that you wrote recently called Is Hypermasculinity the Problem? And I just thought it was so fascinating. There's just so much in it because you're essentially dealing with a problem that we can sort of all recognize, the problem of forming good men in, in and outside of the church but your article is specifically dealing with forming men within the Catholic Church and kind of what the problem is and how to go about solving it. You talk about kind of a two ends of a spectrum where on the one hand, some people are blaming feminization on the church mm. or feminization of the church. And on the other end, people are blaming hypermasculinity. So could you kind of go into a little bit more detail about what you mean by those terms? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I often encounter in the church are these two spectrum, both of which are deeply problematic for me. The first is uh, what I would call a form of like noticing that there's problems between men and women and particularly problems with working with men, that there is this sense that men are like what we need to do is retrieve authentic masculine and authentic feminine virtues. Women Mm -hmm. are gentle and calm and and motherly and and men are strong and they they like to burn fires and (laughs) uh, it it becomes this kind of characterization of masculinity that i i think in the long run often uh, is very difficult for a lot of people to believe in yeah the uh, and it actually can be harmful i think to men and women who then uh, especially men for example who don't find themselves as particularly strong or women who don't see like oh i i'm not gentle and maternal Um, Does that mean I'm an inadequate woman? Mm -hmm. Um, But the second concern I see is, uh, and this is more from a secular perspective, is that masculinity is now understood as this huge problem. So to be a man, so so if one end of the problem is that there's that if you develop these virtues as if they they just exist in sort of platonic form, then uh, you have a problem of, well, what if I don't exist in that form? But the second is that masculinity itself is determined to be the problem. And the way to solve it is just through education. So, you know, hyper-masculinity then becomes this thing where there are men who are too strong and too, uh, they have too much testosterone and they're too interested in sex and too interested in drinking. And so what we need to do is educate these men to be, in, in principle, less masculine. Both I find is problematic because I don't quite know of many men who want to be told that they should be less masculine. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and to that, like for our listeners, uh, we have a special guest along with Tim O'Malley, which uh, my husband, Derek Sams. Hi. And I thought he could That also sounded provide... really masculine, didn't you? <laughs> Speaking of which, mm-hmm. as you're talking, I just want to know then what would be kind of your definition, if it could be defined? I don't know. I mean, obviously there's a difference between men and women, but I see your, the problem of like trying to put us in those molds. Cause I I would say, and Mary Ashley could speak to this cause she's a good friend of ours that like Derek and I also kind of are not in that typical. Yeah. We're certainly not a stereotypical couple. I mean, you're the one who watches football games. (laughs) I do. Yeah. And Derek's really sensitive and (laughs) he does like to talk about his feelings. He's also in the army. That's true. Thanks for putting that in there too. Cause I was like (laughs) wondering how how we were going to balance that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so it seems like the problem is really just coming to a definition of what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman? Right. And, and, And even if we have to adhere to those definitions in a sense, like, 
realize. We don't have to adhere to anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Let's let our guests. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Perfect. No, I like to. It, this is good. It's uh, it's it's like I'm uh, kind of listening to counseling too. Um, <laughs> so no, I think you're right. I mean, I when I think about definition, I think you can you can understand sex as existing. I mean, we are born as uh, men and we're born as women. Now there are distinctions to this at a sort of medical level. It seems like we. If, if, if we try to understand more deeply what tra- transgenderism is, that there could be exceptions to this. But, mm. you know, we're born as men and we're born as women that although there are exceptions, that tends to be the rule. And that is actually something that we can't get beyond. And that it's possible that there's really deep biological sort of dimensions of of being a man and being a woman that we don't even fully comprehend because we don't really understand well what the beginning of life is like. I mean, when I, I have a son and I'm not sure how my son has become the kind of person he is. Um, is it all nature? Is it all nurture? Mm-hmm. To be frank, it probably has to be a little bit of both. Sure. There's, there's also so sort of artificial constructs then of masculinity. So, mm-hmm. so there is something about being male, and perhaps there are certain assumptions about being human or ways of being human that are true, more true for men because they're men. So uh, when I think about being male, I like never have had to deal with menstruation. Yeah. And I don't think that I can think just say, well, stars. that's a social construction. It's not <laughs> a social construction. It's very real. Mm-hmm. Um, my fertility was never really an object of much thought in my life uh, up until the time I was married because fertility to me wasn't related to I, – I wasn't reminded of it from the time I was 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it, these are kind of ways that shape our existence. So is there a definition of being male? Yeah, it's – being male, born male, uh, born as a male person in a particular society, and that there might be certain dimensions of masculinity that are related to our biological natures uh, as we're born, but need not necessarily have nothing to do with social construction. So take football. Is it masculine to watch football? Well, it can be, but is it an, a male virtue par excellence to watch football? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the most manly men I know uh, can't name uh, a single football player uh, at all. So what I think is there are common human virtues, but there there are ways of being a male that's virtuous. And uh, it may involve things like strength. It may involve things like paternity and versus maternity. It may involve things like ways of relating to each other in groups, a way of establishing friendships. But that not everything is socially constructed. But not everything is not unsocially constructed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems to me like like in your article you quote the book Guyland, which is a book that I love and and always recommend to my guy friends. And in that book, he talks about not having the classic social markers of what it means to be a man. And how that has kind of created a problem for men in our society where it's like, oh, you know, you uh, before adolescence was really a thing you would kind of graduate and then you would get a job and then you'd get married and you'd buy a house and you'd have kids. And then like all of that was what told you. And you, you know, you have a job that you probably have for your entire life and your company, you know, probably cares about you and gives you benefits and then you expect to retire. And it's just like a life map that told you that I'm winning at being a man. And we don't really (laughs) have that anymore Um, (laughs) because it's just our, our society is just kind of, uh, we just have kind of a backwards way of doing things. Mm-hmm. We yeah. do. Well, we have the extended adolescence, but we also just with changes in the economy. Like, yeah. It was, I was out of college 10 years before I had a permanent full-time job. I was working temp and seasonal work all over the place. Um, and then, of course, grad school. And so many things like that have shifted. And mm-hmm. it's just there are a lot of things contributing to this different mentality. And I think for some men, we were talking about this earlier, mm-hmm. how like for men it's so normal for us to align our worth with accomplishment and I think that just that changes the way we view things. Um, if we're not successful in our work, it affects yeah. the way we view things in the church too, and um, the kinds of work we're approaching, and how like our self worth gets tied to that. And for better or worse, there just there's so much to anyway. There's so much to unpack here. Yeah, yeah. It's, Sorry, well, I'm about to go off on lots of different tangents. It's, okay. and it's not even directly related to what you were talking about in the first place. <laughs> well, um, can yeah. we go back to? I want to ask you about. You said that the feminization and talking about the feminization of the church is problematic. Could you expand on that a little bit? Because I do hear this mm-hmm. argument quite a bit in conservative circles of kind of just blaming like, oh, well, that's th- that's what the entire problem is, is that 
church is too soft and the only people that are running things on like the really pastoral level are women and we only hear about like the feminine aspects of God and so that's what is making men not go to church anymore. Yeah. yeah. The yeah, the question of this is really interesting from a, you know, sort of perspective that a lot of folks today argue that because uh, that whatever happened after the Second Vatican II, men began to disappear, and then therefore religion became super feminine. So they use images like circles. You know, the churches are now in the round instead of super masculine. You got rid of only male altar servers, and mm. therefore, like mm. men didn't have a place to bro out. Right? <laughs> they don't use the term bro out, but implicitly that's what they're saying. That you know, why would a man want to be involved in a thing that a women, woman is also doing? Um, <laughs> This, this this is the argument. So, um, I, I mean, th th this seems to be like a, a kind of uh, when you have an issue, which is that men are not super involved in the church and seem to be less involved than women, you got to blame someone. And this is kind of what I see is happening. Yeah. I think if you look at intellectual history on this question, it's really an interesting one, which is that w religion basically since the Enlightenment has been known as a woman's game. Um, it was a very sexist, actually, argument. And so men were considered, you know, kind of rational, ethical creatures whose job was to do commerce. And um, religion might be a part of their lives, but it kind of actually interfered from the commerce and intellectual life. Whereas women who were in the home um, needed religion to educate their children. So women were the religious ones, and men were fundamentally the non-religious ones. And I actually think that the, the gap between men and women in the church today have a lot more to do with this Enlightenment assumption than it mm. does with a supposed feminization of the church. Hmm. It's that religion is a woman's thing, and it's not ultimately a man's thing. And so you don't have religious practice amongst men because they say to themselves, well, sure, I, you know, I may get married. Uh, in, in a church, I may get my kid baptized in a church, I may uh, do all these things, but I'm not really going to get myself emotionally involved. And perhaps where there is some argument for this is that after the Second Vatican Council, all involvement in the church uh, often became like, are you really in? And there wasn't this place for men where they once could stand on the outside um, and serve as ushers and like not really attend mass, but like collect money. Um <laughs> So there wasn't this space for them, and I think in some degree you maybe have some men who are less interested in the church today for this reason. But but no, it, it's really a quite poor argument, and to me it's kind of a misogynistic argument. Hmm. It seems, though, too, uh, it seems like before the Second Vatican Council, just for me, I don't know uh, if you would say, if you would agree with this, but it seems like also involvement in church life was tied to involvement in like the ethnic community that one belonged to um, because a lot of Catholic parishes were also tied to an ethnic community. And so there were a lot more kind of cultural ties to the church than we might have now as second or third or fourth or fifth generation Americans. Totally. Yeah. I think that, that, that part of those cultural interests were exactly how men often would live out their spiritual lives. So I was a part of a parish in Boston that maintained a lot of these cultural ties. And men wouldn't necessarily be the most active in church, especially fathers. But as soon as it was time to celebrate Festa uh, or the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which involved the men dressing up in clothing, that, like Italian clothing, uh, like they had official uniforms that they would wear. And they'd attend these liturgies that were only in Italian, despite the fact that none of them spoke Italian. <laughs> they got to carry around a statue and shoot off fireworks. Um, and it was this kind of cultural involvement that brought them back in. And I think with the loss of that, you do have a, a kind of loss of those who would be on the margins of religiosity, which is often the case men. So, um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So whereas, you know, uh, Nona is the one who's going to mass every week. It was always the father who would be engaged in these broader cultural things, be it mass, but it was the broader cultural things that really mattered. With the disappearance of that, I think you do have a problem uh, with retaining men. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is a – because you guys are spe speaking specifically of like the Catholic Church, right? Um, Derek, do you find that it's the same with like our church, for example, where men are less involved with church um, life? Well, I think with our church specifically now, maybe not so much, but I have seen – some of this kind of thing 
in the evangelical church. Like when I was growing up, I would see churches in the 80s and 90s, and a lot of them were decorated in, you know, they'd use pastels in the wallpaper, mm -hmm. they'd decorate with flowers, there'd be plush furniture, um, and things would be in a lot of soft, muted tones, and it'd be fluffy and nice, and and so much of, like, the teaching sometimes would emphasize being nice to people and being soft and meek, and I know, like you were saying, we sometimes it's a false assumption thinking some of those things are more feminine than masculine, but still, there are a lot of things that would appeal more to women than to men. And like you were talking, this could still be like some long-term effects of that enlightenment um, mentality of separating, of making religion more of a feminine, uh, a female activity. And so over time, maybe women were just more involved in the planning and the decorating of churches. But some of what I've seen in the past was like that. It was just things, it was as if it wasn't designed to appeal to men, but to appeal to women. And of course, in more recent years, I think mainly since John Eldridge wrote, uh, Wild at, heart. Wild at heart. I've seen like a backlash against that almost. I know when I was, I went to a Christian college and I had a lot of guys who had sensed that kind of frustration and then were trying to still be like genuine men um, within the church and within Christendom. Um, and in some ways, I feel like people have taken that idea of reclaiming masculinity and taken it a little too far um, because maybe they haven't actually read the book and gotten John Eldridge's int intention from that or they've just. Um, taken like this cultural shift. But I've also noticed in recent years, churches trying to be more um, more aware of that, trying to appeal to the senses of both sexes. Um, there's a church back in the town where I grew up. Uh, this large church built their new building and they designed it in many ways to look like a hunting lodge. They had, instead of having all those pastel colors and flowers, you go in the lobby and there's this huge fireplace with a big stone chimney and they had lots of natural wood coloring instead of um, pretty tile floors. Um, just things like that to make it, I guess, just to appeal to men more and to try and keep men more active, which in some ways you could argue two sides of that. Do we really need to change the way we do things just to make men <laughs> yeah, happy I mean, and get them in it, church? Isn't it kind of insulting to men to think that, like, decorations are what's going to yeah. keep them away? Oh, I know. But, but I mean, also, like, okay, most men that you talk to, they're not going to spend a whole lot of time in a place that's pink and white and purple, yeah, yeah. you know? I but mean, I think of, like... Mosaic or Real VLA or even mm -hmm. our own church, Ecclesia, where are those things even really an issue? I feel like it, we're yeah. very hipster, like it, it and which is very neutral, yeah. right? But I don't know that the modern church, at least within LA that I can think of, including mm -hmm. our own, are are really about feminizing the church. Right, and I think, I think or... a lot of that's changed over time, and also us sure. living in L.A. being around a kind of a different church culture, too. Yeah. We have yeah. a pastor who gets together with men in the church, and they'll drink and play poker. Yeah. You know, I mean... Which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in moderation, of course. Uh -huh. Don't go crazy. <laughs> I want to that. Yeah. 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 And that leads us to... So I think that's a good uh, stepping-off point for... You had some recommendations, uh, Tim, for how uh, we might form authentic men in the church without going too far into these, like, masculine virtues mm -hmm. uh, and thinking that this is X, Y, and Z is how a man uh, is supposed to be, um, but also taking care into, taking care for what the unique needs of men. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit more about your ideas for that? Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the things I think that you can actually agree that, like, is a kind of or, or should be a growing male concern, especially if you read Guyland, is that, you know, there's this kind of delayed adolescence. And oh, so yeah. One of the, <laughs> uh -huh. uh, it's a concern of mine daily. I tell you, it's like, it's all of, all of these problems that, that you were talking about in the article, like, they also affect me just as a single woman in my 30s trying to date, <laughs> trying to find somebody. <laughs> you know, like, got all yeah. of the problems of, like, men not being in higher education, men not being in the church, like, because that's, that's the very bare minimum of what I want. Like, I want someone who is educated. Is at, not necessarily as educated as I am, but, like, is educated mm -hmm. and then also goes to church. And so just those bare Jeez. minimum requirements, like, eliminate probably 85% of the dating pool for me. So <laughs> I run into it with people here and uh, I work with, uh, young women who also want to get married and they're dating. And to be frank, they can't find a man that's worth marrying, that, that is worth marrying. Uh, and that's not just because they're not they, these are, are not in higher ed, but they're, they're not actually sort of good at at like dating or yes. relationships or 
anything. So I do think we, we should form men to be men and not in hyper-masculinity. I mean, I get it that there are certain things, like on my own campus at Notre Dame, uh, we're Catholic, but uh, you know the, the prevailing ethos on a weekend is drink as much as you can and hook up as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's not necessarily every student, but it's definitely the ethos. And so we have to form these men to actually be uh, gentlemen and to actually court and to participate in the activities of dating. And this is not sexist. This is just to establish boundaries by which relationships can unfold. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That's one thing we've noticed in our podcast is that, like, there's just no even common language or common understanding of what should happen in dating. Yeah, there's no understanding. There's no standardization, which is which is fine, but, like, even just the basics of let's go on a date and call it a date versus, <laughs> oh, I just want to, like, hang out with you mm-hmm. or let's be friends and then I want to be not let's be friends and sometimes yeah. I'll flirt with you and then sometimes I won't yeah, and, and <laughs> no one will know what's going the on culture of confusion <laughs> and yeah, then so I actually assign my students in this class I teach I teach a course on marriage to my students and so one mm-hmm. of the ways I'm actually trying to form men and women ultimately in this sort of common culture would be I actually uh, have an extra credit assignment where they have to go out on a date um, <laughs> and they have to ask someone was out your class when I was going to college <laughs> yeah really yeah, well, you all met, so that was good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it worked out for you. <laughs> so, um, but, like, I want them to, I want my students to know, like, how to treat someone well and how to open a door for someone and how to court and how to woo and how to pay and how to have a conversation when you're not drunk. Um, <laughs> these are the things yeah. that I want them to do. And so um, this is an assignment I have, and I think it's part of the sort of masculine formation here. I, I do also think as a church, we could have some more generic practices that I think are uh, that actually both men and women are interested in. You know, when I think about the renewal of all these different churches, right, um, I presume at a place like Oasis in L.A. and mm-hmm. other places, you know, there is this like return to like a common tradition mm-hmm. or sacredness or mm-hmm. contemplation that I think actually can work for both men and women. So. Maybe it's time to put away the retreat uh, where everybody right away gets into small groups and shares the most intimate details of their lives. <laughs> I know a lot of women that would be appreciative of that, too, to be frank. Um, yeah. uh, something where they can have, like, sort of conversations about things that matter yeah. amongst men and amongst women. And to me, that's the way to form people, to men and women authentically, to invite them into conversations about things that matter. Not just, like, saying, well, you're a man and you want to go hunting. Um but because you're male, there are things that matter to you that may be different than for women. And, and mm-hmm. we have to attend maybe to like single sex mm-hmm. formation around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In your article, you mentioned uh, how you ended up having a male, you requested a male only class and you saw how much of a difference there was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I saw precisely paying attention to them that like they began to have conversations that they didn't have when women were in the room. And it wasn't because women were bad or evil or terrible and couldn't keep up with them. Um, It was because they were junior high boys and to be around a woman was to flirt. (laughs) Well, I think there's also like an intimidation factor for young men sometimes wanting to put on a certain kind of air when a woman is around, you know, and also it just changes the dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the only concern, I guess, and it's not really a concern, but um, this is kind of like a general concern of mine is um, it seems like, especially in the Catholic Church, I'm not not super sure about in the Protestant Church, but um, it it does seem like there is already quite a bit of division between men men and women. Um, Like maybe you'll be friends with someone of the opposite sex uh, in college. Uh, but then after, it, there's still, it's still like men tend to be more friends with men and women tend to be more friends with women. And there's kind of a lack of knowing what the other sex is like. Um, like sometimes I have conversations with men and, I'm, and I'll mention something that I've done or, or you know some thought that I had or whatever. They're like, women do that? <laughs> and we're in our 30s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, and so I wonder too how you know because I totally get the um, the need and the benefit of you know focusing on singles. Like obviously there are things that women will open up about uh, without men in the room right. that they would never talk about, or you know. But also like how can we come to a better understanding of one another as humans, you know, of the opposite sex? Yeah, it's a great point. I think that, like something like real authentic friendship has to be cultivated too, yeah. and friendship across different ways. I think one of the reasons that you have this happen is because men don't tend to think of women as potential friends, mm. and uh, because women are not friends, they're uh, they're to be mated with. I mean, I, that's a terrible way of saying it, <laughs> <laughs> but it makes you more that... true to life than I, I meant. So that there's this way in which you don't have opportunities then for these friendships, and so. Yeah, I think that part of that has to be formation of friendships. Again, it's just keeping this balance between what I would call like absurd masculinity and bro culture and just sort of baptizing bro culture as it is and saying like, great, like just be a bro, but now be a bro in Christ. And <laughs> yeah, bros in Christ. Also, just pretending like our identity as men and women don't like don't have any effect upon who we are. I think if we can find a like a middle route between that, we do quite well. Yeah. Yeah. So just with all that in mind, as a question I wanted to ask you, what are some things that you would consider actual masculine and feminine traits, knowing that we mislabel things as such sometimes? I mean, are there specifically masculine and feminine qualities? Still? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them relate to, are uh, particularly uh, related to sexuality and uh, relate to certain sort of dimensions. So yeah, I do think, for example, men have a different sexual experience than women do. Um, I think that men think about sex differently um, because of who they are. And so uh, sexual desire, for example, may not entirely be, um, uh, you know, uh, social scientists know. Here's the best example uh, I can give of this. There's this book called Premarital Sex in America by Regnaris and, uh, Mark Regnaris and, uh, I think someone else, I forget his name, but anyway, uh, it, it describes an experiment that was done in Austin, Texas on Craigslist. And uh, X number of men were approached w about the possibility of engaging in a sex, uh, basically an uh, attractive researcher approached um, men and women um, and asked, would you like to A, this were the options given, come home and sleep with me tonight, B, um, come over to my house tonight, see, date tonight. Um, there were 85 men that chose, I will sleep with you tonight, and there were zero women who chose that same hmm. option. And so I do think that our understanding <laughs> of sexuality is different. And part of that has to do with the way that we understand or design to procreate. A woman carries a child for nine months, and that child becomes a part of her being and it changes her existence. A man who engages in sexual activity does not. And so I think that men often do view sex in a different way than women, and often it's related more to um, how much one can get. Now, that's called hypermasculinity to some. To me, it's more of a trait of men that is related to sexuality and must be redeemed in Christ. That's why I mean you can't mm. just bro culture. Um, there's something about our sexuality as men that actually needs to be humanized, that needs to be civilized. And, um, it's because we don't have consequences that women do. It's mm -hmm. just fact, uh, of our bodies. Um, so that's one example that I would use that done, that then doesn't fall into what I would see like artificial dichotomies. Now there are women who have sex exactly like men do. And this is, uh, this is often common. Uh, this is what Caitlin Flanagan writes in Girlland, which is the counterpart to Guyland. So, um, but they find themselves often more depressed, more saddened, more, uh, they're more prone to depression actually because of it than men. So this is another area we, where you, we may just have to acknowledge that there is this distinction between the sexes on this point that you just can't pass over. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I, I would like to ask, uh, so there's a quote in your article uh, that you talk about uh, this whole, the, everything that we've been talking about, the platonic approach to gender, confusing common human virtues with just relating with what it means to relate to one another as man and woman. 
and that this is a faulty and def radically deficient view of complementarity, often employed by those who popularize John Paul II's theology of the body, but don't quite have the philosophical bona fides to understand it. Can you, uh, can you expound a little bit on that um, and how the theology of the body kind of comes into play here? Sure, yeah. There's complementarity can exist in different modes. There's one version of complementarity that, that we call platonic, which we've sort of addressed, which is there's gentleness, and that is woman, and then there is strength, and that is male. Uh, a better version of it is actually found in John Paul II's uh, Theology of the Body, where he discusses the initial encounter between Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve are, uh, you know, Adam is, by his nature, male. Or, or not at this point, strictly speaking, the scriptures, the word that's used for him at the, the point before Eve is taken is actually uh, Adam, which is not which is not yet masculine per se. The word um, humanity, right? Yes, that's what I... the word humanity, exactly. Mm -hmm. So he only becomes, the text says, man in recognizing the gaze that he has with woman, who is Eve. So he only comes to recognize himself for who he is when he becomes woman, or, or when he becomes when he meets woman, who is Eve, and Eve recognizes who she is in Adam. So this version of complementarity is a common humanity shared in common. And in fact, it's so common that it's actually the same body, right? I mean, um, it's a common humanity, but it's also uh, there's difference, and difference is the only way that um, they recognize the other and the other, and so. Uh, it's both the difference in the case of a woman's body tends to look different than a male body. Um, this doesn't require a lot of experience, experimental analysis to figure out. <laughs> we, we know this early on um, that men and women are different, but that they see this difference in each other and that this difference helps determine part of how they're made in the world. And so uh, this, this other version then says something like, well, there is a version of gentleness. A man is called to be gentle, and a woman is called to be gentle. And this gentleness, thus, will look different depending upon what it means. So here's what gentleness looks like to me as a man. My wife is infinitely patient with our son. She's a brilliant mother. And I, like, and I want to, like, force my will upon my son all the time. Like, she leads him and woos him to truth, and I, like, want him to see truth. I want to, like, turn his face and say, there's the truth. Look at it. Um, this is a good, it's good to have this in a relationship. This is complementarity when you're raising a child. But at the same time, I need to be formed in Kara's gentleness in how I employ this. Mm -hmm. And she also then needs to be formed in the way that I want to be very direct with my son. And um, these are not then just matters of, it's this complementarity as it unfolds in relationship with between husband and wife where we work together on these common virtues that actually complementarity is meant. It is not um, that there's such a thing as gentleness in, men, in women and, and strength in men and that together it's better that they're together. It's rather the difference between the two of us that actually allows the flourishing of these virtues. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, so it's not like one of you is lacking in virtue and the other it makes up for that. Yeah. It's more that you just have different facets yes. of the same virtues. That's a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that difference is what allows us to work it out. So, you know, I was the romantic in our relationship, and I had, like, so many views of romance that I think were just, like, way impossible. And my mm -hmm. wife, she was the least romantic person I've ever encountered. And... <laughs> Um, and in, in some ways I have been properly reformed through this. And so even some dimension of my character that might've been called, uh, quote unquote feminine by some who uh, approach this in this way have actually been reformed through this, what, what we could call integral complementarity. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and So uh, going towards um, hypermasculinity now, uh, you said that the problem of hypermasculinity can't really be solved by education alone, which is how the left seems to want to view it. So could you expand on that just a little bit? Yeah, I think if some of if some of these dimensions of masculine identity, uh, let's say that there are dimensions of being male that is falling. 
um, and maybe use the example that I said, an understanding of human sexuality and the way that sex functions in male life. And there's a sense like, well, what we can do is teach men that they should respect women more, right? Um, now, this is not entirely a bad thing. Uh, you should be taught to respect women more. But actually, the problem with this, of course, from a Christian perspective, is that, you know, it's not just that we need to be taught. We need to be redeemed. Mm -hmm. um, we need to locate our love in another order. And uh, the Catholics have generally understood that this is the function of the sacrament of marriage. Marriage locates human desire in a different order. It saves it. It heals it, as uh, St. Thomas Aquinas argues. So mm -hmm. what we need then is a healing of desire, not just in education. So, you know, let me take an example. Um, it's very popular on campuses, including my own right now, to, to, to try to stop um, cons to, to, to stop sort of campus sexual assaults. Yeah. And I am totally in favor of stopping uh, sexual assaults on campus. <laughs> Good, I'm glad Good. that's clear. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the idea that you can just teach people what consent means is to me a little bit um, like naive. Yeah. Um, yeah. The problem isn't that people don't know what consent is. The problem is that people, that sex can often be violent and that you don't like you do not you it's not a matter of thinking through something it's a matter of actually believing something else throwing your will upon Christ so that you actually believe in an alternative form of human relationship than this one mm -hmm. and that's a matter of belief it's a matter of conversion it's a matter of love it's not a matter of education um so if we want to stop campus sexual assault, we need to call men and women on our campus, and particularly men, especially men, to a higher vision of what human sexuality consists of. And that vision isn't just educational. It's life in Christ is taken up, in our case, within the Catholic sphere, in the sacrament of matrimony. Yeah, I, I was listening to a piece. I think it was on NPR. I think it was on This American Life. Um, that was about... Um, consent classes now that some universities are doing um, and how hard a time the guys in these classes have when they're like, okay, but like, what if this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then like, it seems like it's okay, but then like, what about this? And like, does, you know, and it's basically, basically the classes are kind of giving the students a list of things in order uh, to know like crazy. that someone else is consenting. When, um, along with that, we've had so many things like, because there's been so much sexual assault in the military, like now in the army, we're, we're required to have certain sessions every so often, um, like sexual assault prevention, you know, and sexual harassment prevention. And they've got all these programs of how to report things, how to um, intervene and prevent things, um, how to file reports if things do happen. And when I see this stuff, it's just so tragic watching it. For one, sometimes they miss the fact that sexual assault and sexual harassment happens um, male to female and female to male. And among same sexes, it's mostly mostly the emphasis is male to female. Mm. Um, and then, but also just watching it, I think, man, the mindset is just so tragic because just the whole idea of sexuality is twisted. Whereas if it could be redeemed, if we were actually looking at sex the way God wanted us to, we could really avoid a lot of this. If it was less, if it was more about communion with a spouse and trying to share pleasure with someone else rather than just looking for your own personal gratification, mm. right. um, then we wouldn't how have to How can I use this stuff. person but not leave them so damaged afterwards? Yeah. Well, how can I use this person and not <laughs> suffer any consequences for yeah. it? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm what, what I think I'm getting at, which is this is not a matter of sort of education and a policy alone, but it's a reformation of desire. Yeah. And uh, that's different. And, uh, you know, in the military, you can do that. You can do that, actually. And you can do that in the church. I think those are places that we can actually do that. Yeah, because they're common virtue, you know, like the military can appeal to a sense of virtue, I think, and. Yeah, common, you know, and... standard of behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you would hope at and, least. And, and you would hope yeah. in the church as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are all my questions. Um, Laura, do you have any questions? Um, I had a few so we could ask. I, I was wondering if you had specific recommendations for men of how we can develop a healthy sense of masculinity. Any practices or just habits we could try to form? Yeah, I mean, to me, uh, you know, when I think about my own sort of 
formation into kind of male identity. I think that one of the things that we need to do is find mentors um, who can sort of hold us accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, these are people who we admire uh, in our lives, who are men, who live the kind of lives we want to live and who actually kind of can form us in that direction. To me, that's the number one practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think uh, a life of prayer and a life, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, but like actually to throw yourself upon Christ and to live this Eucharistic life, in, the, in my case, as a Catholic, then it is essential to sort of this, what is male identity? It's the practices of disciplining yourself as a person, as a disciple in Christ. And that these practices are, you know, are, are present throughout the church. Um, lastly, I think that there are these practices of, um, I, I think what I would say, uh, learning to relate to women in particular ways that are respectful of their identity as women and to actually sort of protect these relationships. So I think that practices then of dating are also very essential. What does it mean to date? What does it mean to take someone out on a date? Um, how does that look different than texting someone um, at three o'clock in the morning? Um, yeah. Hey, you up? <laughs> uh, right. Like instead of saying like, um, want to meet at six, I'll pick you up. Like there's mm. a degree of, of respect there that's different. And I think that's one of the ways you can form this sort of identity into what I think is an authentic expression of masculinity. But also, I feel like women have a part in that, um, in cultivating a sense of respect for ourselves. Amen. Hmm. <laughs> um, you know, in like maybe not responding to the 3 a.m. text. Yeah. But I mean, the, the thing with like the culture that we live in now, specifically in LA, is that we, it's this, it's, it's normal. So like we uh, kind of, grasp at the scraps that we're giving. Yeah, we, we take and, the breadcrumbs. And we think, like, oh, my gosh, he's actually responding to a text. Like, maybe yeah. it's, yeah. like, two days later. But, like, okay, maybe he is interested because it's, it's like, he's I'm actually getting a response. And it's, like, it's so sad because that's kind of the, like, expectation that we have. It's such low standards. And then when we get caught up in, like, the low standard uh, relationship, it's, like, we think we won because, like, oh, at least I'm dating somebody versus... <laughs> Versus, like, actually looking for, like, the good man that are out there and and expecting that. That won't that. think it's weird to yeah. say, like, let's set a time and honor that time yeah. and I will pick you up yeah. because, yeah. Exactly. Well, I think, um, just related to what we've been saying, if masculine and feminine identity are fundamentally very relational, then they're also very cyclical. And I think in that sense, we all have a responsibility to ourselves to... Um, reach for the right identity and hold on to it and also to affirm one another mm-hmm. in that kind of identity. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a really brilliant point. I think, yeah, it, this is a mutual thing that has to be worked upon together. Mm-hmm. Um, it would then, you know, talking about cell phones, it does bring something up to me. I think one of the things that we can do is, you know, maybe there is a kind of practice and maybe there's a counter cultural practice of, you know, actually um, finding ways to communicate with one another beyond technology. Um mm-hmm. Like, it's harder to use someone who's a real person in front of you. And so yes. just like yeah. fasting from technology can be the kind of thing that actually could be good for those of us in the church and maybe for young adult groups in particular to practice together. Um, like Because to, to, if you had to fast from technology, you would either stop having any friends or you would find alternative ways to meet up with people. Yeah, I think definitely yeah. it, it, being able to rely on technology – First of all, it makes it hard for anybody to mm-hmm. start an interaction in person. Because, like, if you go yeah. just to a bar, most people are on their phones or they're talking to people they already know. And it requires so much of an – I've actually – it's it's like been my personal mission lately just to go up to people and start talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's great. Just that's to awesome. in, involve them. Um, but it's like that's that's something that is, like, not at all – done anymore and then once you have the technology to fall back on you can text someone kind of at any time and it's the most non-committal it's like i feel like it's a really passive aggressive chess game like you can make a move but it doesn't necessarily have to mean anything and the other person can just ignore it uh or and you can also pretend like it didn't even exist and whereas in person uh you there you're going to have a different set of expectations for what you say and what the other person says, and you're going to have to just interact in a completely different way. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, 
Okay. So so you had another question, Derek? I did. Well, this is not directly related to everything we've been talking about. I kind of went off on some thoughts I had. But the, uh, there was one place in your article, I think you were actually quoting someone else. You talked about um, some of this extended adolescence men have um, becomes this total lack of ambition and how we'll just kind of want to stay in a place and we're not trying to be productive in our careers and in our lives. And I'm wondering um, with that and also just other things about being a man, how we vary from one extreme to another, um, how we might be able to balance this idea of um, it's healthy to have some degree of ambition. And that's not just a masculine thing, I suppose, but balancing that with just natural contentment in your personality. Hmm. Um, I hope I'm not going off on too much of a tangent with that, but. You know, it's a great question because mm -hmm. we certainly want people to care about their futures. And I teach as many students who are apathetic about their futures as I do people who are perhaps overly concerned about their futures. Mm -hmm. So that's all they're thinking about. This job will set up this thing, which will set up this thing. Um, so in this way, I think there is a kind of common human formation that uh, will play out some, somewhat differently depending upon. I, I mean, I think the biggest problem I see in men is that they often um, expect themselves to fall into their future um, with no work required. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were talking <laughs> exactly about the that, that. Yeah, this morning. What I was saying when we were talking about that earlier, that is, to me, that might be related to men's need for affirmation, um, sometimes to our detriment. We want to see results. We want to be able to point to something we've already accomplished so that we can give ourselves value in that. Mm. And I think when you have like more of a long-term effort for some kind of achievement, sometimes it's harder for us to see the value in it. Um, also because men just we tend to think more linearly and we have more of a one-track mind about things sometimes. Yeah. yeah, I think all those things are true as well as like just a, a fear of commitment. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> which is so high because there's a way in which like you don't want to be tied down. See, this is one of those things that I think has to be redeemed. You don't want to be tied down. And um, actually like a lot of your biological urges would, you know, at a kind of very animalistic level is not to be tied down. Like, it would be best for male sexuality if there wasn't monogamy, um, mm -hmm. because then at a biological level, you would actually be able to have more offspring. And I think this sort of desire then gets taken up into all dimensions of life. Mm. And uh, the problem is, is that, you know, but there's no longer uh, there's no longer, for example, that there's not a plan to get married and there's not a plan to date. So you just have this this floating desire um, <laughs> like that doesn't lead to commitment. Like, uh, you know, like I remember that, you know, things changed in my life. I became a man when I got married hmm. um, because I suddenly realized like, Oh, like I can't just float around in this world of possibilities. Um, like I have to get a couch. <laughs> <laughs> like when I, when my wife and I got married, it became very clear when we were moving in together like, she's like, we need a couch. And I was like, do we really need a couch? And it became obvious to me that, yes, we needed a couch. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that there's this way of, like, um, like men needing to learn to commit because there's this part of men that actually is never satisfied. And it's related to biological desire um, in a way that, of course, you know, all of us experience this culturally today. I mean, mm -hmm. um, we all don't – we all are never satisfied, you know. Uh, that's what Hamilton, the music, yes, I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. And that's definitely, I think one of the ways in which online dating makes it way worse as oh, well, yeah. because you can visually see all of the options and possibilities. Mm -hmm. And thus, uh, you're m less satisfied because when you have, you're introduced to more opportunities or, right. more, or all, more options and choices, it just makes you, you land on yeah. one, but you're like, but, but, but what know. if there's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, talk about objectifying. I mean, how many times if you swipe, uh, I don't know what it is, swipe right, swipe left? Swipe left. right is, is a yes, and swipe left is a no. Oh, yeah. Well, nonetheless, if you're swiping this image of a human being, <laughs> right. no longer uh, a human being, yeah, he or right. she becomes an object for your own use. And, oh, totally. Uh, that's a huge problem. Yeah, totally. They become more like a product. It's more like shopping on Amazon for trading cards a or... human yeah. yeah yeah then it is like oh i would like to have an authentic human experience with someone today you know yeah mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah for sure and that just going back to like our even traditional ideas of masculinity and femininity that we need to redeem like that we think of like the idea of chivalry and like the knight going off in service of the lady and mm -hmm. rescuing and 
coming back, winning honors for her and stuff. And it just, this idea of swiping left and right just totally goes away from all of that. Yeah. You know, like it is, I mean, an example for, of, okay, it's absolutely not anything like Ruth and Boaz or mm-hmm. the Song of Solomon. It's just such a distortion, you know? It, yeah. It's really not anything. Mm-hmm. But on the, by the same token, though, having only the picture of chivalry, I think, is problematic too because you you why i try to bring it back around to the bible again (laughs) yeah thank you yeah (laughs) Yeah. because then in that Mm -hmm. case women are like only statues to be put on a pedestal and you go off and fight your own individual battles and it's not like Mm -hmm. you're living a journey together Mm -hmm. and that's the fault that i guess sensitive guys like me have fallen into a lot um (laughs) yeah okay Well, it's true. And I think there is something I like to think about chivalry less as sort of setting someone up on a pedestal and more like an establishment of boundaries by which one knows how to relate in a particular situation. Like when I go to, uh, you know, when I go to a party that I'm attending for the first time, I know certain social conventions that will help me survive in that Mm -hmm. situation. And so, you know, like I know that I shouldn't like walk up to someone and like rub their head. Um, <laughs> that's an inappropriate way to get to know someone. But I can say like, hi, I'm Tim. Uh, it's nice to meet you. And then suddenly there's a kind of friendship, you, like there's openings. So in the same way, I think chivalry does offer opportunities for like knowing one's boundaries so that people don't have to end up constantly in this uh, like constantly having DTRs or determining, yeah. you know, yeah. constantly, yeah. like, what, where is our relationship? I don't know. Like, he likes me, but I don't know. Like, he's never really shown it except, like, these six times that I'm trying to piece together some meaning. Whereas, like, <laughs> chivalry is different, which is, like, I am going to show you that I like you in this particular way. And intentionally so. Yes, mm, and yeah. I am going to treat you well as a woman. And you're going to know that I think you're a woman insofar, not because I treat you poorly or lesser than I do, but because I'm attracted to you and I want you to know that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've just, I've had some experiences where um, I feel like, and mostly generating from online actually, where it's like, it's the opposite of the, you know, I'm looking for an object to use. And it's the over idealization where a guy will like look at my profile and all of a sudden be like, I am so in love with you. I've gotten first message the guy says will you marry me and i, I mean it's a joke mm-hmm. but it's still it's, but still it's i mean it's like what i mean <laughs> yeah. you really don't know me yeah. i mean you know you saw some words and you saw some pictures but you, you know like this one guy just recently got like overly obsessed and he was just like i i memorized your profile because Whoa. it's just so awesome and, you yeah, know stalker and, <laughs> almost yeah and uh and he he was just Maybe like he just has an eidetic memory and he just Mm, no, this was, like, <laughs> this was definitely, he was just like, you know, I'm convinced you're the one, and we had yes, talked on the phone oh one time. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm more talking about, is about the... Yeah, that is disturbing. No one should do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the putting on the pedestal, you know, where, and it's, that's like not seeing a woman as an authentic human either. It's just seeing her as like a set of ideals that match your set of ideals. Yeah. Uh, which inevitably will all fall right because it's like i'm a human person and i have flaws everyone has yeah Mm -hmm. you know so okay well tim would you do you have anything else that you would like to comment on for our audience yeah this has been no this was great thank you so much for having me and thanks for all the work you're doing and these are great conversations to have and i'm happy to participate in one of them well thank you so much because this has been a very uh edifying conversation i think it's been great yeah Okay. Awesome. Well, everyone, Dr. Tim O'Malley, thank you Wait, so you much. Wait, you are a doctor, right? I am a doctor. Okay. <laughs> but not a medical one. I won't save your life. Of course. Okay. <laughs> well, you'll save our spiritual life. Yeah, there you go. Right, exactly. <laughs> I can do that. But but really, no medical attention. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Um, and we will definitely link to your article on our uh, webpage when we post cool. it. We'll send you a, uh, the copy, the link to the episode great thank you so much thank you all right have a good day all right be well bye-bye